Our Bible reading tonight is from Zechariah chapter 7. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, and if you are using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 946. Zechariah chapter 7, uh, we will be reading the whole chapter. If you are using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 946. So let us listen to God's word together. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezah and Gemimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, said to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turn a stubborn shoulder and stop their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent to him by his spirit for the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. I'd like to begin by reading a few verses, in fact, just one verse, from a letter that Jesus wrote to his church 2,000 or so years ago. It's the letter addressed to the church at Sardis. And if you've got your Bibles there with you, you can, you're really fast, you can turn quickly to Revelation chapter 3, but it's just one verse. And I'd like to just begin with this, uh, just this one verse. It's a verse that we know well. I know your works, says Jesus. You have the reputation of being alive. Now it's Jesus writing to the church at Sardis and he says to them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I'd like us to think about this verse for a minute uh, before we come to Zechariah chapter seven. Here is a church with the reputation of being alive. Here is a church with a good name. Here is a church that people our thought was full of vitality and life. And here is a church that we might have recommended 
to our friends. And yet Jesus looked at this congregation and Jesus says to them, you are dead. Sardis had the reputation of being alive. In other words, people thought well of its worship, of its ministries, of its works of service. And yet Jesus says, it's all smoke and no substance. And the question is, how did this happen? How is it that in the eyes of the people around them, they appeared to be spiritually alive? And yet, in the eyes of God, they were dead. Think about this for a minute. What is it that the people saw and they looked at all this and said, that's a church that's alive. And then Jesus uh, speaks to them and says, well, actually, it's dead. It's a dead church. How could they be so right in the eyes of men and yet so wrong in the eyes of God? It brings us to this question, I think. What does true godliness look like? What does it look like to be godly? How do we discern this? What does it look like to live a life that honours God? Now, why is this important? It's, it's important because, as we will find out in Zechariah chapter 7, the outward markers of godliness are not always a true reflection of our relationship with God. Let me repeat this again. The outward markers of godliness are not always a genuine reflection of where our hearts are before God. So, for example, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees of his day, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And in context, they are the expert of the law, they are the pastors of their time. And here's what Jesus says to them For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now the religious leaders of Jesus, they believed that their lives were God-honoring. They prayed, they tithed, they enforced God's law. But when Jesus examined their hearts, he realized that though outwardly they appeared to be godly, yet inwardly they were religious hypocrites. So how do we discern between true godliness and false spirituality? How do we make sure that we haven't deceived ourselves into thinking that we are living godly lives when in fact our hearts are far from God? How do we know that we're not a congregation full of people like the people of Sardis? How do we know? Well, in our passage tonight, we're going to have the opportunity to examine our walk before God. It's going to be an opportunity for us to think about what true godliness looks like. I have three points for us tonight uh, from Zechariah chapter 7. So I hope you've got your Bibles open to Zechariah chapter 7. That our first point tonight, the motive test. The test of our motives. So the Lord questions the motives, the motivation of his people. So in verse 2, we meet a delegation of people coming from Bethel. What they bring with them is a question. And everything else in the chapter is related to the question being asked in verse 3. 
Here is the question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? It's a question about fasting. In the fifth month of the year, the Jews fasted. They wept, they mourned, they abstained from food to mark the day when the temple was destroyed. And they have done so for 70 years. 70 years of praying, fasting, weeping, mourning, and abstaining for food on the fifth year. But the temple is now being rebuilt. God promised to his people in chapter 4 that the temple will be completed. And if we were to read from the book of Ezra, uh, we will discover that we are about two years away from the completion of the temple, so things have been progressing well. And so the people of Bethel are asking, well, since the temple is being rebuilt, should they still keep fasting and continually reminding themselves of something that is sad, the destruction of the temple? Is this still appropriate? Think about this this way. There we have a, an enormous storm. I don't, they don't happen in, in Melbourne, but there is an enormous storm. And the church gets demolished. It crumbles down. And we're meeting outside in the car park for month and month and month in the rain, in the winter. But we are there. And we, we decide to put a time of fasting. So we're fasting through this, and it's taking us two years. But at the end of two years, foundation is being laid. The walls are back up. And they we're very close to receiving the key. And we're about one week away from it. So we're thinking, do we still fast? Do we still pray about this? It's only in the past the church is rebuilt. So that's the kind of question um, that they're asking there. Is this still appropriate? The temple is about to be completed. Should they still um, fast? And what we have in the following verses, verses 4 to 7, it's God's reply. And it's a series of three consecutive questions to help them answer this question of fasting. God is going to give an answer to Zechariah in the form of three questions, a technique that Jesus himself used uh, during his earthly ministry, which is to answer a question with another question. So they brought a question to the prophets, and God replies with three questions. So we will begin by taking the first two questions together. So, so reading from verse 5. I hope you've got your Bibles there open. I'm reading verse 5. This is God's answer. It's in the form of two questions. Say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, in, in the seventh, for these 70 years, and here is the key part of the question, was it for me that you fasted? An interesting question, isn't it? God is asking, was it for me? And the question continues, the second question, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So here is the first test of true godliness, the test of our motives before God. God takes them right to the heart of the issue, doesn't he? It's a piercing question. God wants them to think about why they did what they did for the past 70 years. Why did you do it? Did they do it for God? What God is doing is, is probing their hearts and their minds. And we know this from the Bible. The Lord examines the heart. And God wants them to examine the reasons why they were doing what they were doing in the first place. Now, as you'll find out in the passage, 
God never says stop or God never says continue. He just leaves them with those questions. Did they fast and abstain from the comforts of life to set time apart to pray? To set time apart to acknowledge that God's ways are just, even though they were living in exile? Or did they simply fast out of fear of further retribution? Now that's a question for them to think through. Did they fast to praise God for his holiness and his justice? Or did they fast as a way to appease God and earn his favor again? The point here is, was God at the heart of what they were doing in the first place? It's the same question for us today when we're thinking about true godliness. Who is at the heart of everything that we do in our walk with God? When we think about true godliness as opposed to false spirituality, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are our motivations? Who is at the center of our lives? Is it God or is it ourselves? Or is it something else? So I'm trying to figure out how is it that we do not fall into the trap of being a church like the church at Sardis, where all outward appearance looks to be alive, and then Jesus says it's dead. What's the, what's the key question to be asking? Who is it that we worship? So we can ask ourselves the same question in every area of our world we've got. Why do we come to church? Uh, Jordan, uh, 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 prayed about this this morning in his prayer he asked us this question we come why do we come to worship God why why have we come and in his prayer he said it is to worship God why do we pray to pray to God so do we rejoice do we come to rejoice in the privilege of knowing the one true and living God the creator of all things things visible and invisible the Lord of all the earth so why we come? Because we find this to be such a joy and privilege to know God. And we know that what God has done for us in His Son. And our hearts is full of thankfulness. We've just sang about this. And that's why we come. To honor and praise the God who showed us grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we show forgiveness to those who have sinned against us? Why do we offer to play music at church? Is it for God? Is it to serve God and honor God with our gifts? Why do we pray? Why do we pray? Do we pray primarily to seek things from God? Are our prayers just a, a shopping list of things that we'd like God to do for us? Or do we pray to speak to our Heavenly Father? Because we have, by grace, been brought into a, a loving relationship with the Lord of all the earth to draw near to Him who loves us to come into his, presence, into his presence by his spirit, to praise him, to thank him, to seek his comfort. Why did Jesus rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus rebuked them because instead of putting God at the center of what they were doing, they replaced God with their pride, they replaced God with themselves. And this is exactly what God is pointing out to the people of Zechariah's time. Whether it is it be in their fasting or their eating or their feasting, presumably at the festival, they did not do it primarily for God, but for themselves. There is a difference between fasting and mourning 
because we are deeply convicted of our sins before God and fasting and mourning because of the circumstances in which we find ourselves as a result of our sins. And I'm reminded of this passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul reminds us that there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. It leads us to faith. It leads us to salvation. It leads us to, to zeal for God. You can read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But worldly sorrow, in worldly sorrow, the sinner only grieves the fact that they got caught. There's no true repentance. There's no change of heart. Let me read for you a quote from D.L. Moody. God will not accept a divided heart. God will not accept a divided heart. He must be the absolute monarch. There is no room in your heart for two thrones. You cannot mix the worship of the true God with the worship of any other God more than you can mix all with water. It cannot be done. There is no room in any other throne in our heart if Christ is there. If worldliness should come in, godliness would go out. God sees our hearts. He sees your hearts. He knows our motives. He knows why we've come tonight. He knows why we read our Bibles. He knows why we pray. He knows why we tithe. He knows why we serve on the music team or in any other capacity. He knows our hearts and he desires for us to live in complete devotion to him. So this is the first test of true godliness from Zechariah chapter 7. Do we do what we do for God? Or are we serving ourselves? Our second point. So the first test, this test of our motives, this test of our hearts. The second test uh, is in, front, in verse 7 and the following verses. Uh, I've, I've just titled this, the obedience test. Uh, the Lord questioned their obedience to his word. So, so there is the motive test and that is the obedience test to God's word. The scripture test, if you want. So please look with me at the third question that the Lord puts to them in verse 7. Were not these words the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and, and prosperous? So God takes them back to his word. In other words, what did the prophets say? Thank you for the question, but what did the prophets say about this? What did the prophets teach? God was reminding them that he has addressed this issue before. There's nothing new here. God was reminding them that he has spoken to them through the prophets. God has not left them in the dark. God has revealed his will to them. The prophets proclaim God's message to God's people. They lack nothing. God has told them what was important to him. And God did not only send one prophet, he sent them many prophets. So we can go to Isaiah chapter 1, for example, where God spoke to his people about their religious hypocrisy. And God showed to them uh, the contradiction between their worship and their sinful lives. And God said, there's no point in coming and, and worshipping me and bringing all these burnt offerings if your lives is a living contradiction of what I've been teaching you. And God says to them, I've had enough of these false worships, stop it. You can read this from Isaiah chapter 1. Or we can think of passages as, such as Joel chapter 2. In verses uh, 12 to 13, in George chapter 2, God says to his people, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to me, but return to me with all your heart. God was teaching them in this passage 
that he values the sincerity of their hearts above and against any form of religious expression that is simply outward and, and empty and insincere. Or we can think of Micah chapter 6, where the prophet says, with, with what shall I come before the Lord? So, so there's a question. How is it that I come before God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Question mark. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Question mark. With 10,000 of rivers of all? Question mark. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Question mark. Is that what God wants? And then the answer comes, I has, I ha, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Or we can go to Isaiah chapter 58, which is a whole chapter about what true fasting looks like. In fact, there are multiple passages we could go to. The point is, God has spoken the teachings, the precepts, the principles, the examples, the stories, they're all found in God's word. In other words, they could have answered this question raised in verse 3 themselves. They had all the answers they needed in the word of God. And when we read verses 8 to 10, we discover that God's message ha has not changed. Look at verse 9, render true judgment. Show kindness, we've just read this in Micah chapter 6, and mercy to one another. God does not change, his message is the same. God is reminding them again that he desires for them to live lives that are consistent with God's character and God's word. So it's the obedience, obedient test. Have you been listening to my word? God is just, God is kind, God is merciful, and he desires for his people to be like him, to imitate him, to live in obedience to him, to treat others with justice and kindness and mercy. How we live matters. How we relate uh, towards others matters to God. How we think of other people matters to God. How we speak to other people matters to God. Look, at, look with me at verse 10. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. We've read about this in Psalm 146 as we begin our service together. Here in this passage, the Lord is just reminding his people that he cares for the most vulnerable, the disadvantaged. So in verses 5 and 6, the test is the test of our motivations. Now, what we have before us is a test of our obedience to God's word. Does our character, our actions, our thoughts, our relationship with others, our lives consistent with the word of God? God has spoken. So Zechariah chapter 7 is teaching us that the whole of our lives need to be lived in submission and obedience and consistency with God's word. This is the true test of godliness. A friend of mine a few years ago said to me, oh, you know, I'm, I'm praying and I, I'm trying to discern whether I should forgive this person or not. And I'm thinking, there's, there's no discerning to be done here. Just read your Bible, mate. Forgive. That's praying and, and, and meditating, pondering whether they should forgive or not. But the Bible is clear on this. Forgive. J.I. Packer once said, God has spoken to men. And the Bible is his word, given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Godliness means responding to God's revelation in trust and obedience and faith and worship and prayer and praise and submission and service. Life must be seen 
and lived in the light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion, true godliness. So in verses 11 to 14, the Lord teaches his people the importance and the seriousness of keeping God's word by reminding them of what happened to the previous generation when they did not listen. So verses 11 and 14, just a reminder of what happened in the past. So God points them back to the past. God wants them to learn from their mistake. God highlights how the previous generation completely ignored his word. They turned the, in the verses, it says there, they turned the shoulder, they stopped their ears, and they hardened their hearts. You see the picture, is this, all this particular part of the, of the anatomy, they've turned their shoulders, they've closed their ears, and their hearts are hardened. In other words, the whole of them is just refused to listen to God. So God says to them, what did the prophets say? So when it comes to the question of true godliness, when it comes to the question of examining, examining our lives before God in everything that we do, we ought to ask ourselves those two questions. First, why are we doing what are we, what that we, why are we doing what are we, what we are doing? I got there in the end. Why are we doing it? Are we doing it for God? So that's a question for all of us to be asking ourselves. Whatever areas of life you involve, why are you doing it? You're doing it for the glory of God. Or you're doing it for yourself. Or for someone else that you want to please or impress. Are we doing it for the fame of God's name? And then the second question is this question. Are we living in obedience to God's word? So not only do we know why we're doing it, but we're doing it in consistency with God's word. We're doing it not just why, but how. We do it like that because this is what God says. In obedience, in, in living submission to God's word. Let me give you a quick example. So what do we serve? What do you serve? Well, question number, question number one, the question of motive. Why do we want to serve? See, because we understand that we do not belong to ourselves. We've been singing about this this morning. Why is it that we serve? We, we realize wait a minute, we don't belong to ourselves. We're not our own. But that we have been bought with a price. That we belong to God. That we have been brought into his kingdom by grace through faith to serve. So, I've, so Emily has uh, picked a very proper hymn. This life I live is not my own. We, are, we will sing this at the end of the service. For my Redeemer paid the price. This life I lived is not my own. For my Redeemer paid the price. He took it to be his alone, to be his treasure and his prize. The things of earth I leave behind to live in worship of my King. His is the right to rule my life. And mine is the joy to live for him. We can ask ourselves this question. Who is standing on the throne of our hearts? And then there is the second question, how do we serve? How do we do it? We do it with humility. We do it with a servant heart. Do we do it sacrificially? Do we understand that ministry is costly? Our Pastor Gerald preached this morning about the cost of being a believer of the Lord Jesus. Our third point tonight, so the third test 
The first test is a test of our motives, a test of our hearts. The second test is a scripture test. Are we living in obedience to God? Now it's, it's the third test, the accountability test. The principle of self-examination. So I'd like to go back to verses 1 and 3. You might have noticed I've sort of uh, skipped those first three verses. I went straight to verse 4. Well, we're getting back to those three verses. So in verse 1, we learn that we are now in the fourth year of uh, Darius' reign. It just seems like they're giving us all these sort of uh, dates uh, for no real reason. But actually, uh, there, there is a reason. And if you were to quickly turn at the beginning of the book, you'll find that the whole book begins uh, in, at, uh, in the second year of King Darius. In other words, two years have gone by uh, between chapter 1 and chapter 7. We are now in the fourth year. The book begins in the second year. So it's been two years have gone by, gone by since the visions that we've been looking at in the first six chapters. So in other words, for, for two years, they've been under the ministry of Zechariah. The temple is being rebuilt. They've, been under the, they've heard the preaching. And now in verse 2, uh, we introduced to this delegation of people from Bethel. Now Bethel was about 20 kilometers north of Jerusalem, but more importantly, perhaps, Bethel was known for its history of idolatry and rebellion. You, you read through the history of Bethel. They, they have this at the heart of their history, this history of idolatry and rebellion. Now the question really is at the back of our minds when we are told about those two years and, and people coming from Bethel, we're thinking, oh, here are people with this history of idolatry and rebellion. Have they been listening to the words of the prophets for two years? Zechariah has been preaching for two years. The people of Bethel, they have a question, a theological question, but also a practical question. If you want, a practical theology question. So what do they do? They send a delegation to meet the priests and the prophets. In other words, they brought their question to the religious leaders of the nations. Now the people of Bethel, with their history of idolatry and sin, now have a different attitude, isn't it? Seventeen years have gone by, they've been in the exile, but they've learned. They're not rebellious or idolatrous anymore. They have a theological question, so what do they do? They don't just say, we'll figure it out. They go to the religious leaders, appointed by God. The priests were the religious teachers of the land, so they go to the priests. And the prophets could inquire of the Lord himself, so they went to the prophets. They brought their question to them. There's this question about fasting. The temple is being rebuilt, two years have gone by, things are going well. Should we fast or not? What do they do with this question? Idolatrous people, in the past though, they bring it to God. In effect, they bring it to the priests and the prophets. Now, since the time of the exile, there has been multiple fasts. In the fourth month, for example, they remember the Babylonian invasion. In the fifth month, they remember the burning down of the temple. In the seventh month, they remember the assassination of Gedaliah, who was the Jewish governor of the time. In the 10th month, they remember Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Jerusalem. So there were lots of fasting to do. The 4th month, the 5th month, the 7th month, the 10th month. And quite close to each other. You can imagine, isn't it? All this fasting. Think about it this way. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this. All these prayer meetings. And you're thinking, oh, there's one on Tuesday, and one on Wednesday, and one on Thursday, and one on Friday. What is the minister going to say if I don't turn up? And there's an opportunity for review. They bring the question to the priests. Things are changing. God has promised to restore his people. The temple were well on the way. They simply could have said, let's, let's get rid of one of the fasts. God never required them to do this in the first place. They could have simply said, 
all right, well, we took the initiative of putting this in place. Let's just agree to stop. But no, they brought it to God. And verse 2 says to us, because they wanted to see God's approval in this. They wanted to know that, even as they had this question, they wanted to know that this would please God. So what we find there in those couple of early verses is those sort of three things coming together. Times are changing and it's an opportunity for self-examination. Should we keep doing this? But then there is a desire to please God. And then there is this desire to be accountable. What does God say? This is a process that we should all be engaged in in our Christian life. Not specifically about fasting, but more generally in terms of our walk with God. The point of application is this. Is there ever a time to review and examine ourselves and our walk with God, our ministries, our practices before God? Is there ever a time for us to reconsider why we are doing what we are doing? The principle here is that of self-examination. We have a desire to please God. The Bible teaches us that we ought to be willing to examine ourselves and test ourselves. Are there areas in our lives that we have neglected? There are areas in our churches that we have neglected. There are areas in our ministries that we could do better. Are there areas in our own lives and our own hearts that we need to bring under the microscope of God's word? Self-examination is an opportunity for us not to make the mistakes of doing things simply out of routine. Just going through the motions. It's an opportunity for us to press the post button and to ask why is it that We've been doing this for all these many years. What does the Bible say about this? So let me give you a quick example. Imagine that you've been in, a, in the habit of reading your Bible twice a day. You read it every day in the morning, and you read it every night before going to bed. Twice a day. You do this every day, without fault. Now imagine that even though you do it every day, you often realize that you actually don't remember much about what you've been reading. You do it twice a day, but... Every so often, one of your friends from church says, what have you been reading lately? And, you, and you're like, oh, I don't know. I'm somewhere in two chronicles. Now, which is better to do? Read your Bible twice a day and not remember much, or decide to read it only once, but to devote more time to it so as to be able to meditate upon it and remember what you've read? Which is better? Oh, and my mum and dad told me to read twice, so I'm just reading twice. My minister said to me to read twice, so I'm just reading twice, day and night. I'll read this in Psalm 1. Or is, it, or is it just do it once? Actually, remember what you're reading. So I'll leave this question with you. Uh, the point is, that I'm trying to make is, that it's good sometimes to review what we're doing, examine ourselves in our daily walk with God, to keep ourselves accountable to God and to God's word, to seek advice from our pastors. Pastor Gerald is sitting right here. Pastor Jordan right there with us. What the Lord desires is the sincere devotion of our hearts to him. Not just lip service. Not mere religious observance. Not false spirituality. Jerry Bridges, the American evangelical writer, he, he wrote quite extensively about godliness. Say this, godliness is our devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. 
In other words, it's a life lived to the glory of God. Indeed, Karamdeo, as our pastor preached for us this morning. But how do we know? How do we know that we are not deceiving ourselves? Zechariah leaves those three tests for us. The test of our motives before God. Is God at the center of everything we do? Then there is the test of our submission to God's word. Are we doers of God's word or hearers only? And then there's this principle of self-examination. Are we living lives that are accountable to God? Always reforming. Always asking ourselves, how can I grow? May the Lord help us by his spirit as we live for him. Because without him, we can do nothing. So may he help us. Let us pray. Lord, may we by your grace abide and remain in Christ our Savior all the days of our lives that we might bear much fruit for you and the glory of your name, thus showing ourselves to be your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.